Hello darlings and welcome back to Past Loves, the weekly history podcast that explores affection, infatuation and attachment across time to bring you the lighter side of history and a touch of romance to daily life. I hope that you are doing well. I am settling down into new lockdown measures at the moment. So it is very lovely to be back with a love story that is very dear to me. I, for one, am very excited for this week's episode because we are heading back to Russia. And if you don't know already, Russian history is my absolute favourite. Throughout my undergraduate degree, whenever, whenever I could choose a Russian history module, I was there. It was top of my list every single time. So I have spent many an hour reading about Russian history in all of its complexity and discussing it in seminars, usually sat next to my dear friend Tembi, to whom this episode really should be dedicated to. In fact, it is dedicated to Tembi because this couple was such a significant part of our at least third year lives together. But I mean, she knows my love for this couple. She was there <laughs> the whole time. The couple that we're going to discuss today are therefore, unsurprisingly, my absolute favourite Russian love story, because I find them incredibly compelling. I will, of course, be discussing the relationship between Nicholas II, Tsar Nicholas II, and Empress Alexandra. Now, because it was their best shared language, Nikki and Alex used to correspond in English in their letters. And there was a book of their letters in my university library, which I just always used to have checked out. Honestly, I'm fairly sure that I must hold the record of how many times you can take out the same book with with that one book, because oh, it was my absolute favourite. And I think I'll always be on the lookout for a copy of a compilation of their letters of my own. But Really, the reason why I love their letters, their correspondence so much is because it is such an intimate insight into their lives together and you can really hear their voices. So when I spoke to Virginia Rounding recently about their story, it was as you can tell, very, very close to my heart. Virginia is an author, editor and proofreader, specialising in Russian history and the history of women. Her book, Alex and Nikki, The Passion of the Last Tsar and Tsarina, recounts the dramatic story of Emperor Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra, a truly tragic love story. She uses the letters and diaries of the couple and those around them to explore their lives together, the moments and relationships that shaped the story of their family, which ends with their four daughters, collectively known as Otma, so Olga, Tatiana, Maria and the legendary Anastasia, and Haemophiliac son Alexei, 
in a cellar in Yekaterinburg in 1918. As a couple, they have a truly remarkable story, and of course, we will be mentioning the rather infamous Rasputin as we discuss just why the couple let him so much into their lives. Because this is a story like no other, which, though it's very sad ending, is full with the deeper sense of love for one another. Welcome, Virginia, and thank you so much for joining me today. That's fine. Nice to meet you, Holly. So today we're going to talk about perhaps two of my favourite people from history. So I'm very excited <laughs> about this conversation. We're going to talk about Tsar Nicholas II and his wife, Alexandra. So we'll talk about them as Nikki and Alex for yeah. most of the conversation, because uh, that's how they often described each other, how they wrote to each other. So we'll, we'll talk about them like that. And I thought that perhaps we could start with Alex. Right. How would you describe her as a person? I think she was a very complicated person. Very hard to get to know. People who did know her, who were very few actually, only her immediate family, were very fond of her. Though she could also be very frustrating because she had a huge streak of stubbornness. But she's also very contrasting. And she was called Sunny in her childhood for some reason. Obviously she was Sunny. But people who met her at a more of a distance in later life, which is practically everybody who met her, found her aloof cold. She was actually a nervous person, very socially ill at ease in social settings, and whenever she was called upon to perform, I suppose. I think she'd be fascinating to meet. It, it would be hard to get to know her, and there'd always be the fear that you might say something that would upset her. Um, <laughs> I think probably she's had a bit of a hard deal in history too, because I think we would in the 21st century, we would be a lot more sympathetic both to her mental health problems and to her genuine physical health problems. Yeah. Tended to be, in her time, as dismissed as a hysterical woman. So yeah. you mentioned that she was referred to as Sunny, and that came about in her childhood very early on. What was her childhood like, and who were her parents? Her parents came from a, a small, what was called a small German fort, I suppose, as a Darmstadt, a much smaller environment to be brought up in than what she then had to deal with the Russian court. But it was still, it was minor royals, uh, descended from Queen Victoria on her mother's side, and several children. And part of it, you get a sense of a small, happy family, but they were beset by tragedy all the time. That was the background Pretty soon to Alex's childhood, she was called Alecky, but often as a little girl. And we do get a sense in photographs of this pretty, sweet little girl who everybody adored. But behind it, there's always this rather dour sense of a sort of vengeful fate in her, I suppose. And her mother was very, very upright, very um, committed to good works. Hard to live up to, I think. So there's the dark and the light, I think, throughout the whole time. Yeah, absolutely, because she was very young when her mother died, and her sister died at the same time, didn't she? What happened there? They both died of diphtheria, that there was an, an epidemic of it, and 
Alex's mother was actually nursing the little girl and caught it from her. She's nursing all her children, but she died. But even before that, there was the family tragedy when Alex was a baby of her brother, Pretty, yes. who accidentally fell out of a window. It was only on the first floor, but it turned out he had hemophilia, which ran through the family, and he died from this fall a few hours later. And, and her mother never got over that. I mean, can you imagine it? She was actually in the room and she had to look away for a while. I know. Shocking. Absolutely awful. And it affected all of them. I think even the baby would have felt as she grew up. That awful sense of guilt, I think, that was often not verbalised, but there in the background. So yeah. I think then, then her, her mother herself dying and her sister May just sort of added to the darkness. Mm. Um, sense of fragility of life being that it could suddenly be taken away from her. Yeah. And then once her mother did die, her grandmother, Queen Victoria, quite significantly stepped in. How did Queen Victoria form Alex's outlook on life and her role within the royal household? I think Victoria's influence was amazingly significant. I mean, from one perspective, she was the, the loving grandmother who took these children under her wing and, and more or less left out the influence of Louis, their father, Victoria was going to be in charge, and she had them to stay a lot. She was a very significant presence. And, of course, she had certain attitudes that worked for her as mm-hmm. queen, and she sort of put them onto her grandchildren. And Alex was very influenced by Victoria. And then she took certain attitudes, she learned from Victoria into her later life and they didn't work so well. What one knows about Queen Victoria is I think maybe she underlined or encouraged Alex's obstinacy because she had a very clear sense of her own rights as a monarch and passed these on. And a sense of not really being responsible for other people. I mean she would have been horrified to hear or say that because she got great responsibility for but on the other hand, when she was mourning Prince Albert, she made Sutter to do about it and wouldn't come out of retirement. And and she sort of sucked darkness into everybody else somehow around yeah. her. I think both in terms of carrying on this sense of always being in mourning for the perfect person that's lost, whether it's Prince Consort Albert or Alex's mother, Alice. They're sort of set up as icons. So there's that sense. And then also there's, you don't need to worry about what your subjects think. If you feel ill, poor girl, go to bed. So she sort of treated her granddaughter much like she treated herself, putting herself in the first place, not having a sense of what we now would call PR. Yes. (laughs) Well, how do I look to my people if I spend my entire time locked in my bedroom feeling sick? So... She never pushed Alex out of her sort of comfort zone. And the way I think they encouraged one another to adopt long-term minor ailments or that the way to cope with them is to indulge herself a bit. She wasn't, of course, at all keen on on Alex marrying into the Russian royal family, so she did have a sense that this was not the safest thing to do. I know. 
So it was when Alex was 12. Yeah. In 1884, that she first met Nikki. How and when did they meet? They met when Alex went to the wedding of her elder sister Ella to Nicholas's uncle, Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich. And so they met as cousins, as young people within different branches of a great royal and imperial family. She on the much sort of lesser side of it than him. And they see, well, they talk about sort of being immediately attracted to one another. And of course, at the time, it was a 16 and a 12 year old, so it was a sort of playful relationship. Mm. No immediate great romance, but certainly a spark there right from the start. Yes, I think Nikki started referring to her as pretty little Alex, which is a testament to what's happening in the future because it's another five years before they meet each other again, isn't it? Yeah, but they stay in each other's minds all that time. Mm. Of course, it would be that they both knew they had to make a good marriage at some point and very probably within a particular circle. Yeah. And so even when meeting as children, there'd be our young people, there'd be those uncles and aunts looking on and thinking, I wonder about that, or not. And so that would also be sort of subliminally, but certainly they continue to think about each other. Yeah, and then Alex went to St. Petersburg, didn't she? Yes, she did. Um, Yeah, and and they developed more of an attraction to one another then. And, And Mickey... I mean, he certainly had a fling or two in his youth. But yes. He never seemed interested in marrying anybody else. Um, Alex seemed to be the one for him. Yeah. He calls it his dearest dream to marry her, doesn't he? Which is yeah. very sweet. Yes. I mean, he, he, I don't think he was quite as stubborn as Alex, but again, he did, he did have a very firm, once he'd set his mind on something, he tended to go for it, though it might not look quite obvious that that would be the thing. Mm. So there was one big, significant obstacle yes. to their getting engaged. What was yes. that? It was the difference in religion. I mean, it may not seem to us a huge thing, though actually to Orthodox people it probably still would. Alex was a Protestant Lutheran because that was what was the dominant denomination where she grew up, and indeed Nicholas was the heir to the throne of the Russian Empire, which was firmly orthodox, because the three things went together, orthodoxy, autocracy, and the fatherland. So mm-hmm. it was absolutely vital, and it was part of the law of the land that his bride must be orthodox too. Now, for someone who cared less about religion and of integrity than Alex did, that might not be an insuperable obstacle. I mean, what one thinks back to uh, Catherine the Great, for instance, who was the same trajectory but with very different ends in view, um, wanting to dominate. <laughs> she, she managed to make that transition from Lutheranism to Orthodoxy with no apparent difficulty. Mm. But she had to write to her father, oh, there's really no difference at all. I mean, they all believe the same thing. Uh, just a question of form. Well, actually, there are doctrinal differences, but and they could indeed be overcome. But to Alex, it was such an important part of her sense of self that the idea of 
at making that change and becoming orthodox and, and which involves rejecting yeah. all that. Because that though, though you might see it as a worse, it's all Christian, certainly. When you become orthodox, you reject all heresies and, and, and you do that overtly and that includes every other form of Christianity. So it would have been a big thing for was asked to do. And though her sister had done it, explained it to her, and, and she had various people to, to instruct her or to talk about it to her, she couldn't do it for some time. And I think partly it was, again, that sort of self-punishing aspect of her character that runs all the way through as it goes from childhood. And so she did find it very, very difficult. And Nicky found her opposition difficult because... He couldn't quite understand it. He, he was also a, a firm believer. So to him, why would you not become orthodox? I'm not asking you to become a heathen. But it's, <laughs> it's a wonderful tradition to be part of. And yeah, and obviously because it's a royal marriage, there was a lot of discussion on both sides of the family as to whether it was a suitable match. What did Nikki's parents think, and then what did Alex's family, her father and her sister, think? Her sister would certainly have welcomed her company mm. to go down the same track as, as she did. And I, and I don't think she saw any major obstacle to it. She thought Alex should, should do what she'd done. Victoria had her doubts about losing her granddaughter to this great Russian empire and what that might mean for the future and how stable it was or not. Nicky's parents were not convinced. I mean, they thought there were other princesses, but he managed to overrule them and he was, he was determined, so they weren't going to stand in the way of his desire forever. No, um, he certainly doesn't talk about the other princesses in a very nice way. <laughs> but there were certainly doubts around it. But they weren't, they weren't overwhelmingly strong. I think other people hadn't seen that much of her, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were she wasn't going to fit in. So, uh, yeah, a, a, a lot of the, the marriages around that time sort of fell between two stools. It was no longer the tradition so much for people to be told who to marry. So the heir to the throne, I mean, again, going back a couple of centuries to Catherine the Great, she arranged her marriages for her son. Of course, why would you not? Yeah. <laughs> Change from them. Though there might be doubts about various grand dukes, they wouldn't actually stop him. No, so how did they finally get engaged? How was Alex finally persuaded? It's hard to say. Various people joined in persuading her. They'd gone to Coburg to, for another wedding, again, within the family. And one of the troubles was that Alex was becoming aware she would be pretty much left on her own because her elder brother, Ernie, had just married uh, somebody they called Ducky, again, yes. within a collection of royals. So she was going to lose her place as his sort of, well, housekeeper, putting it too lovely, but <laughs> companion in, yeah. in formal things. So there was, I think, in the back of her mind, that sense. Uh, then various of her family joined in at this wedding this event of the Ducky's marriage, they all were there. And so her cousin, even uh, um, William, Willie, uh, the later famous Kaiserville, joined in 
trying to persuade her. So there was quite a big family pressure on her to cave in. And actually, she wanted to in her heart. She did love Mickey. And I think, I don't quite know what was on in her head. Nobody really does. But there may have been some sense, well, if I don't agree now, I'm going to lose him and I'm going to lose everybody. And so she managed somehow to make that renunciation of what she felt and said, yes. I made everyone very happy. Yes. <laughs> she sure did. She made one person in particular very happy. It was absolutely, yeah. He wrote about it. It was a wonderful, unforgettable day in my life. Maybe we could talk a little bit about Nicky. Yeah. How would you describe him as a person? Again, a complex person. More complex than sometimes he's he's thought of. There are those who just see him as limited, unable to think outside a particular box. But I think I think he's much more complicated than that. He's, he's a very sympathetic character. Over and over again about his wonderful eyes and how they kind of make people melt. And at that time in his life, as a, as a young man, he was very much typical sort of guards officer of his time. He enjoyed the military aspect of his duties. He, he loved the sort of rollicking around that went from being a guards officer with some Petersburg, the gypsies going out, and all the kind of stuff they did. So he had that very convivial social side. He was very unwilling or petrified the idea of becoming Tsar. And he thought of it as something much in the future. I mean, his, his father, Alexander III, seemed the picture of how big, imposing man, quite young still. And so whenever Nicky thought about becoming Tsar, it was something way in the future. And he thought, maybe you're all right by the time they got there. So it was, it was not something he wanted to embrace. Like Alex, he did have his stuff inside, and he could deploy that to very good effect. Uh, indeed, through his determination to marry her, we see that. It's commented that he had a bit of an obsessive-compulsive side, and they're not the words that they use, but that's about it. So that you could read things like, he liked to have on his desk in exactly the right place, all marked out, so his cigars and his pipe and his pen and his papers and... and Whenever they moved from one palace to another, the servants had to make sure everything was put in the same place for the next desk. So you can see how, to some people, he became a bit of a, a bigger ridicule. Um, but he was very, very sort of upright, absolutely loyal to the people that he gave his loyalty to, and good to the people who gave their loyalty to him. Very good person to work or if you were, if you knew you were on his side. It's got more complicated later on, but so I think a whole load of tragedies made it very difficult for him because in peaceful times or in a, a less turbulent country he'd proved been alright. He's often compared physically with his cousin George V. Yeah, I mean they look they look very so similar. similar. He looked like George V, and George V was at least as limited as Mickey, probably more so. 
but he survived on his throne because he didn't have to do so much. I mean, he yeah. You're not in charge of everything. <laughs> so then Nicholas can never have got his head around the idea of constitutional monarchy in Russia. Yeah, so he looked far more like a British aristocrat than a Russian Tsar, and particularly compared to his father, who was like this big, proper, burly Russian man. What was his relationship like with his father? Wary, I think. They were very fond of him. Well, certainly he was very fond of his father. I think his father was pretty fond of him, but with a bit slightly... With doubts, mm. he quite got it in him. And he was in awe of his father. That was mm. amazing. How could he ever live up to him? And that sense followed him throughout life and, and contributed to some of his probably unwise decisions, despite the fact times have changed. So he was a very strong influence, but not always to the good. Also, his father could have prepared him better. I know he didn't expect to die young. But he didn't train Nicholas particularly in what he was to inherit. So he didn't really involve him and explain what statecraft was and what he would have to do to rule. He just saw an autocrat who, of course, was in reaction to his own father who had been liberalising. So you do get the pendulum. Um, They somehow imagined it would carry on like that by, by being very firm and not giving an inch towards any kind of other way of ruling. Yeah, what kind of education did Nicky receive? Um, fairly limited. I mean, he had tutors. He read a lot. He was a good linguist, excellent in English. But it was the education you would get if you were going to be in the Russian Imperial Army. So it, it never pushed him beyond his boundaries. Also, of course, it was always confined. It, it was him and a tutor, maybe a cousin or two. If he'd actually gone into the universities, he'd gone to meet other young men of his age and studied with them, it could have been different because he needed to be questioned. He needed to actually understand that to learn, he needed to ask things. Yeah. So he never was given a chance to see beyond a quite tight circle of autocracy and how things ought to be. He didn't have his corners rubbed off and he wasn't challenged mm. to think. So he learned not to particularly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think his, his intelligence and, and his ability to think was never developed enough. But it's hard to say because often one is you're trying to read between the lines of someone who was very self-contained. Yeah. And, and you see it, I'm sure you're aware, sort of in, in his diaries. You think, oh, someone's diary, you'll find out about them from their diary. But yeah, they got up, went for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, a, in many ways they're incredibly dull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like kind of lockdown diary, wasn't they? Got up, had my diaries. <laughs> came back and what the legs of the thing. That's exactly what they are. <laughs> but the couple were finally able to announce their engagement in April 1894, and then they were hastily married in the November of that year because Alexander III died. Yeah. So 
Do you think in those beginning years it was a happy marriage because it seems that they were very passionate about each other? Yeah, they were very passionate. They'd have been delightfully happy if it had been just the two of them. <laughs> yes. And in a way, that's what they'd anticipated. They thought they were going to have quite a long engagement. The idea was that Alex would come to Russia, or well, spent a long time before going to Russia, learning Russian, mm. learning about orthodoxy, being ready, and then she would come. And then they would still be living just as the heir to the throne and his wife for years. And that just didn't happen. They immediately were propelled into this position for which they weren't ready. Alex, because she adored Nikki, of course, when he said, come now, my father's dying, no question, of course she went. And she was a support to him. He was made a huge difference in that she was there. But he had to come be the Tsar straight away. So yes, they had this, of course, he converted, they married, and then there was the coronation. They are all pretty much condensed. At least the coronation was a few years later that he became Tsar. Yeah. So what would have been a gradual introductory period and would have enabled, arguably, Alex to take up her role with a degree of confidence wasn't there. She was propelled into this life. She wanted to be with Nicky all the time. He was busy. He couldn't. He had an empire to rule. Yeah. He had a huge amount to take on and to learn. And he was very, whatever else he was, he fulfilled his duties. He was very, very dutiful. And so he would, if he had to work, as we did, for long hours. And so they couldn't be together nearly as much as either of them had anticipated. And Alex thrust into this world for which she wasn't ready and which was so different from what she'd been used to without people there. But so Alex's mechanism when things began to go wrong as they quickly did, not with Nikki, but with everybody else. With everything else. <laughs> to retire to her room. And again, her upbringing with Victoria played into that. So I think what happened was she was, she was a young woman, not good at this language yet, in this court with these, of which the Tsar, her husband, was one of the younger ones. He was mm. uncle, the grandchildren were there looking down, and she had a difficult mother-in-law, all making her feel absolutely petrified and really nervous. And Nikki too busy to actually be there to help her through that. Some of the time, he'd be there at night, but he'd be busy in the day. Mm. So, or she'd be expected to be alongside him at a social event, but at a court event, but he'd have to be being bizarre. He couldn't just be looking after a rather nervous wife. Mm. So her way of dealing with this terror was to retreat to her bedroom with a headache or sore legs, whatever it might be. And I'm not saying she didn't have a headache or problems with her back and her legs, but they became, became a bit of a habit, it wasn't an excuse that when, when she's nervous, anxious, get me and go to bed, and Nicky, in a way facilitated that, he wanted to be happy mm. but he was, at no point seemed able in those early months to say, look, you've actually got to be, you've got to come to these things, you've got to play a part in the court I will get help to help you to do it. There was, there was none of that. There was, oh dear, poor Alex got a headache again. Um, she better go. And so that this rather unhealthy pattern emerged very quickly. 
and people who might have helped her somehow it didn't work. I think Minnie, her, her mother-in-law, would have helped. But of course, she was also in mourning. In yeah. Nicola's mother, Minnie, was really, really good at being Zara's consort. She was a wonderful compliment for Zara's III. She was naturally gregarious, social, fitted in with court life. Couldn't really understand why her daughter-in-law couldn't. But probably would have been able to give her some help and advice, except on the one side, she was herself devastated at the death of Alexandra. And Alex, her nervousness made, made her resistant to the kind of help that she might have received. So though between the two of them, Alex and Nikki were, were deeply in love, very happy together. There was always that tension of, oh, we can't be together on our own. We've got to go and do all these court things, and all these officials in the way, and protocol, enormous amount of ceremonial to observe. So, yeah, the tensions are very difficult. But I think, as often it stemmed from that early death of Alexander III, that they could have had yeah. years to get used to the life. Because how they write to each other and the terms of endearment that they use for each other, it's so clear how how deeply they felt for each other. Yes, oh, they did. And they do write in a sort of baby language that we find quite hard sometimes. They also didn't have everybody to be reading it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one of us looking back saying it's a bit sickly. <laughs> yeah, they did. They were indeed very passionate about each other. But of course, sometimes... It's easier to do that in the letter than when the person turns up. Um, it's not, they're not quite as perfect as the one that you just projected. Yes, the narrative that you write about a person is far easier to construct. Yeah, and, and you, you write and you say, oh, I really, really want you, and then they turn up and you're doing something else. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't quite know, obviously, we never can know what went on just between the two of them. But from what we can gather, they certainly devoted. And they were quite devoted to family life as well. I kind of always get the sense that Alex and Nikki would have preferred it if they were just on their own in the countryside with their family at some point and then didn't have anything else to deal with. <laughs> so what was family life like? Um, they replicated as far as they could in the middle of the great Russian court. They tried to replicate sort of bourgeois Victorian large family life, like something out of the course like Saga. I mean, they, well, that's what they like. They imagined having this townhouse or large country estate, but not yeah. as large as they got, where they could be on their own and bringing up their children. But yeah, they'd have been happier on a much smaller scale. Yeah. And always, Alex in particular wanted to protect that. And I think, again, we go back to the influence of Victoria, who the same kind of vision. Yeah, yeah. Time Albert really tried to create that bourgeois family. Absolutely. And um, well, I think that's precisely what they were then trying to do as well. What were their approach as parents? They were really loving. There's no doubt you could see that all their children adored them, even though they found Alex in particular pretty difficult. Mm -hmm. And they all had their moments. But they were very trusting of their parents. And they got their girls and, and got their, their son on the family. And, and I mean, a lot of the tragedy of the 
that we know about with the, with the last from Arnest was the fact that they wanted and needed an heir, although it took a very long time for, for Alexei to be born. So there were all these girls. What you never ever get, unlike many Victorian type fathers, that in Nicky's response, you never get any sense of wishing that they hadn't had it. It's delighted when they're born, as the people around are saying, Oh, no, another daughter. There's never any sense of that with him. And you can see in their sort of family holidays when they were happiest, when they were on the, the imperial yacht, the standard, they were, they were the best times for them because then they were just them with a quite a small entourage who knew them well, they got on well with the sailors. So, yeah, they're an ideal family life, a, a beautiful family. Yeah, oh, the daughters are so, so beautiful. We're so lucky that we have so many videos and photographs of them as a family. They've been more and more being found. You certainly see a lot of them on YouTube. <laughs> um, so you talked a little bit about the fact that Alex would retire to her room and she was a little difficult as a as a mother. Can you explain, like, the little notes system yeah. that happened. Yeah. Increasingly as Alice became more and more of an invalid, she would retire to her room quite a lot. And she wouldn't necessarily let her daughters in. And so there began this sort of system where they would write notes to one another. The daughters might send one saying what they've been doing and hoping she was doing all right and she she'd write either loving or rather admonitory notes back. Be good little girlies, and yeah. certainly in some of the ones from the younger ones from Maria, in particular, the third daughter, you get a sense of, Oh, I really wish I could come and see you. Mm-hmm. Mars, too well, and you get a sense that they're tiptoeing around all the time and to make sure that she's not uh, suffering too much or that they're trying not to annoy her. Yeah, part, it, it was, uh, it's quite something of, of its time, I think. I don't think it should be unusual for a mother in many respects in her time and in her background mm. that mixed in with the love is the need to control and to make the girls behave like most little girls. So there's always a bit of a, a debility, a sort of general illness is sometimes used as a controlling mechanism to make them be good. Yeah. And... Alexei, who was the long-wished-for son, he plays a very significant role because he was so desired, didn't he? Yeah. And, of course, he knew. He knew who he was. <laughs> he knew he was the next star. He was more important than his sisters. So then he loved them and they loved him. There was always that, well, I'm the important one. So he's also very spoiled. Um, I mean, there are reasons for that, apart from his own personality. But he was desired his long for so long he, when he came and when he was born it was as it seemed an answer to a prayer to them very much to a miracle that they'd sought. They really believed this was the gift from God. And then it, it, it went wrong because very soon it was worse he had hemophilium, which came through the Alex's silent family thing, but was never overtly explained to people outside the immediate family, often not even to them. But it made him even more precious. They were always very protective of him. Of course they had to be, because if he knocked himself, 
he would get this dreadful internal bleeding and be in agony. Possibly mm-hmm. a threat to his life. They did as well as any parents could in those circumstances. Yeah. They, did, they didn't mollycoddle him more than necessary. Nicholas was quite stern with him. He was the only person able to control him. And he had a happy childhood as far as was possible. Mm. Uh, look after him. But the girls, of course, also had to feel, felt very protective towards him. You certainly get the impression from other members of the wider family that when they come to a meal with them, they see how bad he behaved he is and no one can control him. Yeah. So there were lots of internal tensions. But also, again, he's so photogenic. He's as beautiful as he is. I know. Yeah. Little sailor suit being carried around, you know. No wonder they all adored him. Yeah. So we've spoken a lot about them as a couple privately. So perhaps we should talk about them as a couple publicly. Yes. And who they were as the Tsar and Tsarina. How would you describe Nikki as a Tsar? Very, very dutiful. Very committed to his role. But in a way, he was there at the wrong time. It was a time of huge ferment. Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to hold this automatic rule. And even before it all fell apart with as the first review of the Catholics, there was the revolution in 1905, which was very significant. Yeah. Mickey couldn't adapt, and it's partly a limitation of himself, but it's also his whole upbringing, his way of thought. When Nicholas was crowned, he really believed he was being anointed by God, and no doubt that for him, he was taking on a role that he had to. He was given it, it divinely ordained, and he had to hold it for his late father, for the empire, for God, and, there was, and you couldn't, you couldn't back off that. So even though after the 1905 revolution, he had to make changes, big changes to the constitution, and involve the Duma and her, his heart wasn't in it, he did it because he had to. Yeah, and the tragedy that happened at his coronation, that oh, yes, gave that. him a, a rather nasty Nicholas the Bloody name. Yes, it did, and that was a PR disaster as well as everything else. Yes, this, when all these people turned up to celebrate this field they'd been invited to, and it, it wasn't, there were too many of them, and it hadn't been properly prepared, and there was a huge stampede to get the free gifts and things, and the people killed. And sensible response would have been to cancel um, all the festivities that the royal couple went to that mm. evening. The various, the Grand Duke, his uncles said, no, you know, you've got to stay true to being bizarre and they expect you at this event. So they went. And so he was very affected by that tragedy, but yeah. people's death, but that wasn't necessarily perceived. So yes, it, it's, his reign did begin, it was marked by something unpleasant and fearful right from the start. And so you do get that. And then with the Bloody Sunday thing in 1905, but again, the PR was so bad. These people recessing towards the Winter Palace. You see it all over the place in some films. Yeah. And 
and being shot down and to imagine you imagine the czar up there saying, Oh shoot them, we weren't actually there. Yeah. <laughs> necessarily, but but that was the picture of it. Yeah. But I think it would have been awfully beyond him to say, Well, actually, let's see what we can change. How can I compromise? He didn't do compromise. And I think it was made worse by Alex in that respect, who was even less of a compromiser. Yes. Listen to his advisors if they were strong enough. Mm-hmm. But he had her in the background saying, Who? Can't do this off. It must do what you say. Yeah. Um, I find Alex's role incredibly interesting in this making sure that he asserts himself in his role as the autocrat and also because Queen Victoria didn't feel that she would need to cultivate public a positive public opinion as well. Yeah, yeah. And indeed she didn't need to, in the sense she had other people running the country. Yeah. <laughs> but it didn't work for her granddaughter. <laughs> exactly. But yes, that's right. I, I think exactly that attitude was, was carried on. I don't need to be any different. We are the divinely ordained autocrats. Yeah. And the people should love us and will yes. love us. You love us, really. Yeah. I mean, Yes, and Alex used to talk about herself as your wall, didn't she, to Nikki? Yeah. She, she did view him as a bit weak at times. From that point of view, they were a very bad combination. And people could see it in the family and wider. Yes. So Rasputin was a, an important figure privately and publicly in their lives. I mean, infamous in so many ways. How did they first meet him? They were introduced to him through... A pair of women from Montenegro, part of the wider imperial family, and they'd always gone in for mystics and rather odd people. And they were the first to to Rasputin and, and earlier to, to other people. Mm. And at first, I don't think they didn't take that much notice of them. But then, when they found Nikki, found a very interesting to talk to. Uh, and of course, there was this great tradition in Russian. Orthodoxy of the Holy Fool that he did yeah. sort of wandering, or Kostramnik in Russian, the wandering peasants they could often be, not necessarily priests, maybe monks, or both. Mm-hmm. They took upon themselves a kind of holy man, that's a mantle, and um, walked around the country begging and preaching and doing nothing in particular that sort of being seen as, as a way to God. And that's what him fitted into that category. How did their relationship get so intense, considering all of the rumours that there were about him? Well, I think it was, in a way, it's, it's, he sort of fitted into the whole privacy thing. Their desire to have their separate circles, have their own friends. And so they liked to see him on his own. And at the same time, the wider family always was suspicious of this desire to just be together. Mm. And so seeing this, or being aware that they, there was this relationship with this man, who they weren't sure who he was, and we looked a bit dubious, but, but straight away we raise alarm bells. Because obviously nobody knew really what was the problem with Alexei, so mm. then the desperation that Alex was feeling. Exactly. So they wouldn't understand why she needed to hang on to these holy men. And 
clearly he has some remarkable gifts. He certainly did have a very calming effect on the little boy. He could actually, it seems, stop some of these bleeding attacks. Yeah. Because it was often made worse by nervousness, by getting in a panic about it. By stress that it was going to be dangerous. Exactly. And so to people outside there think, well, what is going on? Who is this strange man that the imperial couple put such faith in? But to Alex, she was very, very devout as an orthodox, having made this change from Lutheranism to orthodoxy. She embraced it so wholeheartedly that with no doubts or questioning at all. And so to her, of course it was from God. He fitted the bill. He worked, the descriptions worked somehow. Um, he sounded like an apostle. And if anyone said, oh, you're deluded, he's from the devil or from some dreadful political movement or he's just a roué and divorced. She said, well, that proves, you know, mind, that proves he's good because you're the bad people criticizing him. So it yeah. kind of, it fed on itself. Yes. So, of course, things start to reach an apex come World War One. Yeah. How did they function as a couple in this time? Because obviously Nikki was away at the front for a significant amount of time. Because he wasn't away to begin with. No. He, he was in St. Petersburg running things. Well, not running things, a big example there. It was actually Rasputin and Alex who were really determined to send him to the front. I mean, they wanted him as commander-in-chief because they thought that that was going to win the war. Nobody else thought that. I mean, it was a very controversial move. It's never a good idea for your head of state to be commander in chief because one thing, if it goes wrong, he gets the blame. So <laughs> yeah, he's used to blame about that. And he had training. Yeah. Yes, of course he thought he did because he had all this guard stuff as a young man, but it was ceremonial. It was walking about. It was riding a horse. It wasn't actually being in a war. So in a way, it divides into two periods because to begin with, the demands of the war were quite good for Alex. She's forgot all her ill health problems, went away a bit, and the bit that contributed to them psychosomatically went away. Mm. So she was able to function and work very hard as a Red Cross nurse with him. And then and that crumbled. And at the same time, she had more to do with us, in and together they began to interfere hugely. Well, Nikki was away. Alex started seeing the ministers and being advised by Rasputin as to who to fire and she'd tell Nikki to do this. Yeah. Yeah. So there was this string of hopeless ministers. Oh, it was so unstable, the atmosphere they created. Yeah. Uh, And the reasons people were appointed were because they supported Rasputin rather than because Mm. they needed. And publicly, her relationship with Rasputin and the fact that she had German roots didn't go down well, did it? Inevitably, it wouldn't, would it? So, no, she was unfairly suspected yeah. of um, German sympathies. And partly because the Russian people had never seen her much. They'd never seen this distant person. How were they to know? Yes, there are some incredible cartoons of her and Rasputin that come out at these times that really just portray how little they thought of Alex. Yeah, yeah. But, but again, it is it's, it's a two-way thing that she never did anything to counteract that because yeah. consistently her view would be, well, they're wrong and nothing to do with it anyway. 
No, and she yeah. really tried to get Nikki to assert himself as well. Yeah. yeah, yes, she did. And not necessarily in the best way. So we all know come 1917, the significant strikes led to Nikki's abdication and at the time he also abdicated for Alexei as well. What were their reactions to the abdication as a couple? Well, when Alex got the news, initially she couldn't believe it. She was at her best at this point in some ways because though she was horrified, her immediate thought was for him. Mm. And huge pressure he must have been under to do such a thing. She wished she could have been there to stop him. She never blamed him, but because he had got to the point where he believed abdication was the best thing for the country, the time he thought that was the only thing he could do, he was very sad, but he thought that was it. And then they were in this position of just the family, and I think emotionally they supported one another. They found it awfully hard. They, they bore it together. What was it like for them, first in Tobolsk and then Yekaterinburg? It got more and more difficult. But, I mean, initially, they, before they were exiled, they thought they would be going to England. And all. Yeah. Vicky would pack it. That hope gradually faded away. They coped pretty well in Tobolsk in, 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 the, in the way that it continued to match what their vision of family life had always been, but with certain things taken away gradually. Nicky mm-hmm. found it very, very hard that he couldn't have enough exercise because he was like going out. Yeah. The girls coped very well because they'd been brought up to be pretty self-sufficient. But gradually it told on them more and more. And there's that sense of doom. Can you describe the final moments of the family? They sound pretty horrific. They're woken in the night and told we're leaving. White arm is getting closer and we need to take you somewhere else. Uh, they were brought downstairs until too late and they, they put their awaiting some transport or something. And then the, the commander comes in and says, We have orders to shoot you. And the way it's easier, I think it's easy, for the parents because they think we shot outright. The girls thinking they were being taken somewhere, prepared, they had their jewels sewed into their sort of bodices, which acted as sort of body armor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They had to be bayoneted to death. It, it really is a horrific end. Yeah, and to take all the, all the children home. What do you think their legacy as a couple now is in our public consciousness? That's a very interesting question. There are different consciousnesses, aren't there? Because there's the, there's the Russian Orthodox view. Of them yeah. As, so everywhere you see the icons, idealised picture of the imperial family and stories of miracles associated with it. So there's, there's that side. And I think that also it feeds into the whole way things have gone in Russia with the collapse of the Soviet system 
total collapse. It's enables another myth to grow up and go well, everything Soviet was wrong and dreadful. I think that there's still a tendency to see them as a bit too black and white, so that we also have that abiding image of Nikki the Indecisive, who was in the wrong place for a long time and couldn't stop a revolution. And Alex, who got up to know that he was speaking or who was just inadequate in some way. Yeah. I think where they fit well enough in our consciousness is that we do now see things in a more rounded way. We have more sense of, we're learning more about different sorts of illness, for instance. I think we can yeah. see that there's a number of conditions that could be treated. We do see people possibly more in their context and I think maybe we're a bit more forgiving than we ought to be, that we can see why people acted in the way they did through their upbringing and background. Mm. And so I think that's where we do see a genuine tragedy for them, that they were precisely in the wrong place at the wrong time, both really doing their best to do what they thought they ought to be doing, but it was so often not the right thing. No. But I think in our consciousness that's rather worrying because I certainly found this when I was trying to get inside their heads as far as we can when I was writing that, is it makes you doubt your own self as well because there were occasions where Mickey was absolutely sure that he was doing the right thing even when it went wrong and often those moments would come after he'd been praying when he felt completely at peace with himself and some inner voice said do this and we know that thing. we tend to trust yeah. ourselves and yet it would appear to be completely wrong arguably <laughs> I think I think in our consciousness they're, they're, they're a big question mark they question how much people can do as individuals in great historical changes they make us question our, our own selves our own judgments so I think they're quite useful. They are. How do you think we should remember their relationship? With a degree of sadness. They were certainly devoted to one another. Did give them a great strength in their last months. Yeah. At times, I think they probably did drive each other mad. Certainly, I think Alice drove Mickey mad. On many occasions, by being so difficult and uh, or you got the sense of she'd write these great passionate letters when he was at the front. He'd come back for a few days and she'd be in bed with a migraine and he'd go to get ready. So you were wondering about that, that conflict between reality yeah. and, and imagination. So I think she frustrated him in certain ways. But they were still completely devoted to each other within a context of very, very firm Christian belief. That Whatever else it did, they supported them together in those last weeks. And it's partly why they're so not, why they all the lots spoken now. Yeah. Well, I think they're an absolutely fascinating couple. And thank you so much for talking to me today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed discussing the relationship between Alex and Nikki. 
with Virginia. I have to admit, I have the biggest soft spot for Nikki. I just, oh, oh, bless him. Um, <laughs> I've just always felt really strongly for him. But I find Alex particularly compelling because if you read some of her letters to him, at the front especially, she really does seem to always want him to assert his dominance and to know that he is Tsar. And so I found it absolutely fascinating talking with Virginia about the role of Queen Victoria in her life and how that affected her. Virginia's book, Alex and Nikki, The Passion of the Last Tsar and Tsarina, is available on Amazon and at Waterstones. And I believe she's also written a book about Catherine the Great, which I think I will have to get my hands on, because, well, Virginia just clearly writes about all my favourite people. All the people that I find most interesting from history. So yes, that's definitely on my to-read list, and Alex and Nikki should be on yours. If you have enjoyed this foray into Russian history and have not yet listened to last season's extremely different love story from the Russian countryside, then I might be a bit biased. But I highly recommend listening to my episode about the Chikachevs with Kate Antonova, which I will leave a link to in the show notes. I will also leave a link to a three-part 1996 documentary about Alex and Nikki's final years as Tsar and Tsarina, which is available on YouTube. It's called Last of the Tsars. Certainly not to be confused (laughs) with the odd documentary drama reconstruction melange that is the Netflix account of the couple with a very similar name, The Last Tsars. I think Last of the Tsars is a very good portrayal of them as a couple and sovereigns, and it uses a lot of archival footage of the family, which I always think is important to see because it brings the people that we have been discussing today to life. And to me, that's something really, really special that we have it's the beauty of Nikki and Alex. They really documented so much and there's so much footage and there's so many pictures. It's something tangible that this pair have left. And so I'd highly, highly recommend watching it and seeing them together. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you are listening to it now. And if you would like more love stories from history, then I would love to chat with you over on Instagram at Past Loves Podcast. Because really, if Past Loves has become your current love, there is no better place to be. Until soon!